Welcome back to FinTalk brought to you by Vermin. Here we discuss pressing topics in fintech, regtech, covering regulatory, collateral, and digital across banking and insurance and finance. Vermic has been proud to deliver innovative software solutions in the industry with stability and cost efficiency for our global Rostock clients. With over 20 years of trusted transformation in finance and insurance, we're bringing industry's top expertise to FinTalk. I'm Gerald Akta, and I'll be your host for this podcast. Welcome back to another episode of FinTalk brought to you by Vermeg. Uh, I'm Gerald Akta, your host for this session. Today, I'm delighted to have Naveen Ronia, who's a partner at Tata Consultancy Services. So today, we'll be talking about ESG, which is a key topic from last year and this year. And Naveen, welcome. If you can give our listeners a few a few words about where you've come from and um, and what brings you to ESG. And thank you so much, uh, Jawad, for that, that kind of introduction. So call me Naveen, call me Nav, whatever everyone's comfortable with today. Look, you know, my journey has been uh, 20 years, just over 20 years now in the uh, industry. And, you know, started in banking, military asset management, ended up on the trading desk and uh, went into some commodity firms, headed up a team at Credit Suisse, basically looking at models and methodologies, and then ended up in uh, the whole lovely world of uh, consulting now. And one of the interesting points is how and why am I doing ESG is what is powering ESG? What is powering minimizing and mitigating climate change? What is powering the journey to net zero? It's finance. And that experience that I've gained in finance as well and other professionals who I worked with has made it very clear that ESG and the policing of ESG now has moved off from originally governments, but now to the financial sector as well. Because at the end of the day, it is credit that drives the economy. Now, if we overlay ESG on there, put that together with financial markets, that's a very, very powerful position. And in my role, looking at ESG, it's all about bringing together business and technology for our clients. And how do we basically implement ESG in a smarter way, may I say? Perfect. Thank you for that. That's a, that's a quite detailed uh, description of that. There's, ESG is a massive topic, right? We, we I spoke a lot about it in uh, last year. And uh, Nav, I know you were uh, one of our speakers at the um, at that Red Conference for Vermeg. And I know we've spoken before as well. And you made a really good point last time I spoke was, you know, everyone talks about ESG. We talk about the E. But not much has been spoken about the SNG. So it's quite a deep, quite a vast subject uh, to cover. But for firms, I know the focus is a lot around the E and where you know all the all the news information has come out and what the regulators saying. But how do firms measure the S and G part of this? That's a really good question, and you are very clear in saying that current state of the market within ESG is focused on the environmental side, and rightly so, given that there is a climate change crisis happening at the moment. But we also need to think about the S and the G, as you rightly said. We also need to think about the correlation between environmental, social, and governance, because degradation in the environment is not great for social and governance metrics. Now, if we think about social and governance and what are we trying to measure so when we look at things like gender pay gap 
when we look at gender equality, diversity and inclusivity, mental health, industrial accidents, i.e. health and safety, number of sick days basically taken, these are all metrics that are being used to measure social value, especially for a corporate, a large corporate firm, which would be disclosing already some of this information via different pieces of sovereign legislation that are based around the world. But we go further when we think about social as well. If we home into the UK, the current government's agenda on levelling up as well is talking about how do we reduce social deprivation? How do we build more social housing? These in itself can be turned into metrics to support the S in ESNG. And then when we move to governance as well, well, your answer's in there as well. But how do you measure it, right? How do you create a metric for something like number of regulatory penalties that a company has received, the scoring of its regulatory lobbying, the scoring of its political risks? Does that company follow best practice of a corporate governance uh, board standards that are set by a sovereign government? Now, this is what we are trying to do. We are trying to work out these examples of S, these examples of G, and how do we standardize those? Because it's not new. ESG is not new. This data has been around there. It's about bringing this data together and standardizing that data, especially for the S and the G. That leads nicely on now to my next point, data capture, right? But I think you teed me up perfectly there. Data is a huge, huge issue, right? This has been, data has been an issue since BCBS 239 that came out. And ESG brings a whole different dimension to this data requirements. And like you just said, you know, how do the data is there? How do we now start compiling it? Where is it? What system is there from? So how can firms, you know, start going about collecting this? It's just, it, you know, it's endless part of data, right? How much, how do they do it? You know, what's, do you have any ideas of the consultancy you guys have been doing? Or how can they kind of go about getting this process kicked off? So, first of all, that old chestnut re uh, rears its head again, BCBS 239. <laughs> I think the first thing we've got to think about is, for our audience who are here today, more than likely financial institutions as well, well, where has BCBS 239 been practiced, right? It's the large GSIFs, right? The systematically important financial institutions that we have out there. And the progress is still ongoing at the moment, as we know. And for smaller institutions, which won't have as resource intensive or the support they require to be in a alignment with PCBS 239 is a challenge. So what we have now here is two problems. We're thinking about data standardization and data points from E and S and G, but we're also thinking about ongoing dependencies and using BCBS 239 as best practice, which is great. And it's a really, really good way to, to get started as well when you're standardizing your data. And that's something that we do a lot with our clients. Look at existing data standards, look at existing data models, look at that data life cycle as well. What are the common data attributes that can be used? And yes, if you're uh, a subscriptant to DCBS 239, then even better, right? You know, but we have to also go back in history. And I think what's important to think about is 
when we look back to 2008, when we had the financial crisis, and very particular in the credit markets, a lot of that was being caused by poor data on understanding underlying collateral. And for example, the housing market ratings data as well. Now, do we want to go back to that era? Of course we don't. So this is where, when we speak with our clients, when we work with the IT departments, when we work with the business departments, it's all about saying, what, what are the standards and what do you aspire to? And how do you use BCPS 239 to do that? Because we don't want to go back and find that, well, the data quality wasn't great and we used ESG ratings or ESG data points to value, let's say, a green bond uh, or a green loan. And we got that horrifically wrong because the data wasn't correct. Yeah, it kind of reiterates the point that the regulator made in the DCEO letter about getting the data sorted. So yes, for the bigger firms, BCPS has been been around for a while, still being implemented. It's more about the tier two, tier threes, how they do it. Uh, you're right, and how do they go ahead and do they do yes. So you can't apply that big bank mentality. Yes. So, so Jamal, I think that that's where, you know, tier ones have to show best practice, right? Mm. And by tier one showing best practice, then naturally, you know, tier two and tier three institutions will fall in line. And that's what's basically going to drive the agenda, again, for ESG data practices mm. as well, for ESG analytics, for ESG reporting as well. Look, at the end of the day, if your ESG data is wrong, you're going to get some critical fundamental ratios wrong, mm. such as the EU's green asset ratio, such as the EU's banking taxonomy alignment ratio. When you are trying to align your investments on your balance sheet as a financial institution to the EU taxonomy, and its six principles of climate change mitigation, climate change adaption, circular economy, water, uh, et cetera, et cetera, plus the four other principles that exist in the EU taxonomy. So very, very critical. Bad data, bad calculations, bad reporting. <laughs> Don't think anyone wants to be in that space, do they? Yeah, not, not now, not at the moment. So just kind of leading on to that, so according to the, the government's uh, ESG timeline, so as of 31st December 21, the firms, the PRA now expect firms to embed their supervisory statement 319. So what does that mean for the capital and disclosure reporting now knowing that we're going into 2023? So we'll have firms will start now disclosing their ICAPs, their stress scenarios. So all these new ratios are going to have to start being disclosed. And, you know, some, for some firms, it's going to be new. Some firms already started doing that process. Yes. Yeah. What is what should they be expecting now going in when they start start now doing their pillar threes and ICAPs? So first things first is SS three or nine is a remarkable piece of regulation that we have from the PRA and very, very informative as well. It's also been supported and had strong support from the Bank of England CFRF, Climate Risk Forum. I can correctly get that acronym <laughs> correct, yeah. The CFRF, yeah. I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Google it well. That's what I usually say. And the CFRF has basically been sponsored by large, you know, uh, institutions. And those institutions have really, really made those metrics 
such as risk limits, such as risk appetite, such as implementation of ILAP, impact to ICAP, impact to existing stress tests, as well as well as the whole brand new climate risk stress testing regime known as the Biennial Exploratory Scenario in the UK, the BES. Very, very meaningful. And there is a huge connection between what we do in PRASS319 and how we disclose and how we link that back to a stress testing regime, especially in relation to climate risk. So when we think about climate risk stress testing, we need to make that meaningful. How do we use those metrics day in and day out to evolve and change the future of risk management? How do we look at the monitoring of, let's say, methane leaks from a factory where you have made a $100 million loan, for example? What if you are an asset manager and you are holding 20% investment, again, in a company and a methane leak basically happens as well? What if you are a company that's invested that's basically made a declaration that I will be interim net zero for scope one and scope two carbon emissions by 2030. Now, you want to basically use these types of examples that I've said, but you need to be very clear that PRASS319 allows the financial institutions to be clear about these are our, not just our environmental commitments, but these are our policies into how much risk we are going to take or how much risk is going to be tolerated as well. And I think another interesting part about PRASS319 is it's highly interlinked to the 30-year stress tests that need to be done as part of the BES. And then obviously we have 50-year stress tests and stress tests out to 2100 as well. So again, to summarize, a very, very powerful piece of regulation that is out there and for the year upcoming it's definitely going to basically make a, a big change in uh, the thinking of uh, revenue generators as well yeah you're right i think as well as well as the revenue generators also the disclosures we'll start seeing now in the market which will be very very interesting to see what comes out of that just lastly you know we've we had we heard from the uh the new chancellor around the, uh, the Edinburgh reforms announced in 2022. There was a bit, I kind of picked up on it, there was a bit about the about ESG, and we're expect, expecting some papers to come out in Q1 and, and Q2 this year. But is there anything key that you found from that, from the reforms uh, that came out, that you think actually you want something to look out for? I think it's early days when we think about the Edinburgh reforms, but we need to be very clear about what is the right balance between risk versus reward in markets as well. We also need to think about how do we use Edinburgh reforms to accelerate London as the number one place to raise sustainable financing as well. But we also have to be mindful of what happened, as I mentioned, in 2008 as well. Right. So how do we balance the amount of regulation and the proposals that are coming out of the Edinburgh reforms 
to allow the UK to grow its GDP, to allow it to become an innovator in sustainable financing products such as green loans and green bonds. We're also looking at uh, products such as TNFD swaps as well. So how can we look at investing in biodiversity via the TNFD framework, which allows us to realize the value in land and have that uplift and issue a swap against that? You know, sorry, I just described a product. But th these are the types of innovative financing tools that can evolve as London being a sustainable financing powerhouse as well. Because we all know in the West that it's all about moving to a greener economy. But again, we have to be mindful. How do we balance risk versus regulation as well and what is optimal uh, at the same time? Yeah, that's a, that's a really that's a really good point, especially about bringing back the what happened in two thousand eight. Final thoughts? Anything? Um, I know we, we're um, we're in the new year into twenty twenty three. Anything firms to look out for? I know we're going to be doing a lot more on ESG uh, collaboratively in, in this year, so there's a lot more to look forward to between that and ourselves. But uh, any final thoughts? I think to summarise, when we think about when this journey really started and when did it become mainstream well esg has been around for a good 15 to 20 years but how do we basically connect not just esg but climate change and climate risks concepts such as circular economy how do we look at carbon markets to support that journey to net zero regulated and carbon credit i.e the unregulated part of the, the market moving to net zero, but also thinking about that sustainable finance play. And that is one of the biggest opportunities that, well, especially the UK has currently, but also, you know, other countries are catching up on this. We also need to think about the fact that we really have made progress over the past year in understanding fund labeling, for example, if a retail investor is going into funds, do they really know where their money is going in terms of being greener or being more socially investable as well? So we made progress there. You know, there are also a number of different initiatives that are coming out from the EU as well, such as the green bond standards, such as the EU taxonomy, the SFDR, the CSDR as well. In the US, you know, got the Inflation Reduction Act that has been passed, as well as the SEC proposals on how to basically report out ESG as well. And last but not least, the biggest progress is getting a common disclosure framework from the IFRS's ISSP committee as well. Putting all of that together is really going to power 2023 ahead for uh, the financial institutions, not just in the UK, but around the world as well. So definitely significant progress made. Still lots to do, or lots of gaps. Maybe we can talk about those gaps on subsequent podcasts, Jawad. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I know this, um, we, we, I know we're doing a lot more work on ESG, so we'll be definitely be doing a lot more podcasts and a lot more other stuff as well going on. So more to look forward to. Now, I appreciate time. I know how busy you are. Um, so thank you so much for, for your time today. Uh, really, really enjoyed chatting to you. And hopefully we'll, we'll catch up again in our next podcast. 
No worries at all. Thank you for having me, Javad. Brilliant. Thank you, everyone, and uh, look forward to the next one.